that, you know, some of you who know me know that I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which, in the words of the genius songwriter Paul Simon, is the cradle of the Civil War. And growing up, I remember taking walks and seeing monuments and climbing on cannons and reading plaques everywhere in places like Chickamauga and Missionary Ridge and Lookout Mountain and Point Park. And even though I was exposed to all this growing up, I really never understood how sort of it all fit together, if you know what I mean. Until 1996, a friend of mine came into town and we had been planning for years to go to the Olympics in Atlanta. And and he had one request when he came into town. He said, I want to see every Civil War site in Chattanooga, every one. And that's what we did for three days. We, we, we went to every museum, we walked the walks, we read the history. And what was pretty amazing about this is that it sort of all came together in a way for me that it never had before. I sort of saw the, the big picture. And, and as I read these accounts, what I realized that I'd come, come to see here is that this is like a comprehensive military history. I'm living like in the middle of, of this historical place. And in a lot of ways, as we come to Genesis chapter 14, that's what we have here. We have a military history. And this is a military history that is recorded initially by someone outside the family of God. If you look down at verse 13, it notes that Abram, who's obviously the the chief character in this section of Genesis, it calls him Abram the Hebrew. And that's a good indication to us that this was probably, this account was written initially by someone who was a witness to these conflicts, who was sort of native to the land outside the family of God, so to speak, and who was sort of watching, observing what this stranger Abram was accomplishing on the battlefield. And what we think probably happened is that Moses took this account and he modified it, he edited it, he narrated it, and inserted it into his own Genesis account. He incorporated it. And the reason I'm saying all that, this is significant Because this is the first time the biblical record intersects the historical record. We need to be reminded that the Old Testament, the Bible in general, is not just a story of myths, fables, Aesop's stories, mother goose, draw moralisms. These are lands and peoples and armies, geographies, real places. And it's a reminder for us, folks, what what we have placed our staked our claim on when it regards the Word of God. We believe that this is God's inspired Word. That, in fact, God is not just the Lord of this room or Lord of the American church or or even Lord of this country or the world. In fact, Jesus is Lord of everything. He is the sovereign. He is the king. He is ruling. He is reigning. We see all the quote-unquote, randomness and craziness and chaos of the world around us. And we need to be remembered, folks, that Jesus Christ is the Lord of history and that all of history is being woven together to tell a story. And the center of this story, the main character of this story, of course, is God himself. 
And what we're going to see through this passage is that there is much more than simply a military history. It's not less than that, but it's so much more. It's an opportunity where God wants to reveal something about us and something about himself through these seemingly, quote-unquote, random events on a battlefield two or 3,000 years ago. So two things I think we need to see from this text. One of these is about ourselves, something God wants to show us, and another is something about him. So here's our two points, the cost of sin and the mission of mercy. Those are our two points. Let's dive in. Now, between all those Hittites, Amorites, mosquito bites, you know, insect bites, it's it's a little difficult to keep the flow of the story in mind. So let me just kind of give us a kind of a 40,000-foot overview of what's happening here. You basically have a bunch of regional kings, rulers who are living in the east, say modern-day Iran, Iraq, the Dead Sea area. And as would happen in those times, they conquered lands to the west. And these would be lands near ancient Canaan, near Abram, Syria, Jordan. These were, in a sense, what we would call in modern-day terms, occupied territories. There were these vassal city-states that were free to govern their own affairs as long as they did what the, the big kings told them to do. And they were, in a sense, sort of under the thumb of these foreign conquerors for 12 years. Now look at verse 4. It says they had had enough. They decided to rebel. They, they, there was mutiny on the bounty. They were, they, they were mad as heck and they weren't going to take it anymore. And it tells us in verse 5, and there seems to be sort of two phases to this battle. So you have this initial battle where they're just angry and it's all emotion and they're not going to take this anymore. And they go out and they challenge these kings and it is a beat down, okay? <laughs> they send them home with their tails between their legs and hopefully learning their lesson, not tangling with Big Brother anymore. But for some reason, they were not sufficiently dissuaded, these rebel states to the West. It says that they regrouped for a second round. It's kind of like watching Apollo Creed and fight the Russian in Rocky Three, right? He keeps taking a rock. Is it Rocky Two or Rocky Three? That's sacrilege. Rocky Three. And he takes a pounding Apollo Creed, and he's just sprawled out on the mat, and you're like, please stay down, Apollo, okay? I know you're making $10 million for this film, but please stay down. But then he gets back up because he just wants to give it one more try, and then he's just absolutely clobbered and crushed, right? And so here, this is what we find in this text. These folks are rallying for round two they are crushed even more decisively and what we find out is that in the middle of all this poor lot poor lot abram's nephew is swept up into all of this he sort of finds himself in the middle of all this chaos and he and everything he has is wiped out his family his kids his Wives, his possessions, they're all sort of taken captive and he himself. And as we read this, there's a temptation here, I think, to think about this in terms of poor Lot, right? Lot is an innocent bystander. Lot is at the wrong place in the wrong time. Lot is the, the guy driving the speed limit on the freeway and there's two nuts in front of you and they get in a collision and he sort of gets tangled up in it, right? 
That's not what I think is happening here. That's not why I think Moses has included this story for us. See, growing up in Chattanooga, I'm back, back there for a second, we do have the occasional snow, or did. And as young boys would do, it was our common custom to hide in the bushes and throw snowballs at cars, right? Ice balls. And inevitably, because we were natural athletes and it just came naturally, right, we would on occasion hit one of these cars. And the driver would inevitably slam on his brakes, jump out, and start screaming at all of us. And now on one hand, we could say, but only one of us actually hit that car with a snowball, right? Okay. And we were very eager to point out to the driver which person that was. But yet, it's kind of silly, kind of stupid just to say it was that person's fault. We were all complicit, right? We were all there. We were part of the party spirit. It was part of the culture. We were caught up into it as well. And I think that's what Moses is wanting to communicate to us about Lot at this portion of the story. Remember last week, Pastor Scott did an awesome job preaching chapter 13. Remember that Lot and Abram from last week were faced with a choice. Or better yet, Abram was faced with a choice. Abram said, listen, Lot, I don't want there to be any strife between us. You go to the direction you want to go. I will go the equal and opposite direction. And where did Lot make a beeline to? Sodom and Gomorrah. The land he chose, he chose for maybe agricultural reasons, fertile reasons, those sorts of things. But clearly, he didn't try very hard not to settle right in the middle of pagan territory. This is where he set up his home. This is where he set up his abode. Abraham built an altar and worshiped the Lord. And what did Lot do? He assimilated and cast his lot with the world. In a lot of ways, I think this story is meant to highlight to us the, the fruit of Abraham's, or Abram at this point's, faithfulness on one hand versus the fruit of Lot's folly. See, this was a costly, costly choice indeed for Lot. We, we, we kind of read it on the, on the sheet of a paper. Oh, he was taken prisoner and he was given, you know, a meal and, and a phone call. No, no, no. Guys, to be taken prisoner in this sort of battle in the ancient Near East meant certain death. It meant almost certain death for Lot. It meant a lifetime of servitude and slavery and the most heinous of exploitation for the women and for the children. Their culture was eliminated. They were completely wiped out. I mean, Lot, this is no small place he finds himself in by taking by being taken captive see it's a reminder you know that that many of the struggles we experience the things that we're walking through are one we're we're suffering you know we we get a call from the doctor and we get a diagnosis we get a call from our boss something happens that's beyond our control. We, we live in a broken world. This is inevitable. And so all of us bear the, the, the burden of walking in a broken world and experiencing the effects and consequences of sin in our life. Sometimes things that have absolutely nothing to do with us in terms of our culpability and responsibility. But we all know, don't we, 
There's another set of things that most of us are dealing with in our lives that we can directly tie to this choice, this foolish decision, this unwise choice. We Places that we have decided, you know what, I'm not going to take the path of faithfulness. I'm going to take the path that's easy, that's smooth, that's wide, that leads right up to the gate. And that's what I think Moses is wanting us to note about Lot's situation. He's here as a consequence of his disobedience. Now, there's an interesting irony in all this. Go back to the text for a second. It says that, that this battle happened, the Valley of Siddim, that there were, in fact, bitumen pits. Bitum, bitum, what, Beth will tell me the way to pronounce that after this, right? And, and what this was, this was in the Dead Sea area, so there were lots of mines and minerals and resources, and this was a heavily contested military area. In fact, it's probably one of the reasons that gave rise to this rebellion. They were, they were fighting over territorial rights and who controlled the mines and those sorts of things. But interesting, in verse 10, look there, it tells us that these things they were fighting over were the very things that destroyed the armies of Sodom and Gomorrah. See, you see the irony, right? The very thing that their hearts most wanted were the very things that destroyed them. Is that not just the way idols and sin so often work? See, we see the same thing with Lot. He, why did Lot settle among the wicked? Why did he settle among the wicked? Why do you and I make compromises? Why do you and I choose certain paths over others? Because we think it will what? Benefit us. That it will bless us. And so often the measurement we use for making those decisions is, is not of the word of God or the priorities of God. It's the things of the world. It's the idols of our heart. It's our own selfishness, our self-centeredness. And we thought that this would be the way to prosper. And it turns out it was not the way after all. So here, see the irony, Lot thought Sodom and Gomorrah would touch that place in his heart. He's secure. He's got plenty of goods. He's got some friends. He's dwelling in the fertile land. And here he's being destroyed by the very thing he thinks will save them. Guys, the, the, the scripture, if you, if you want to boil down the way that the Bible talks about sin, like what's, its, what's the central theme of sin in the Bible, it is undoubtedly idolatry. You see, idolatry is the root sin of all sin. Idolatry is worshiping something else as ultimate instead of God who is ultimate. Looking for something for meaning, for significance, for wholeness. We are all idol makers as Pastor Scott talked about last, last week, our, our hearts are generating the idols. Our hearts are meant to adore, worship, value certain things above other things. It's not a matter of if you worship. Everyone in this room worships. Everyone in this world worships. That's not the issue. The issue is what are we worshiping? See, in Isaiah 41, the people of Israel were fighting this same battle. And, and 
Isaiah plays this sort of fictitional dialogue in his address to the idols of Israel. And listen to what he says. And every time, by the way, he's referencing an idol, just in your mind, in your heart, insert whatever it is that that thing is for you. It may not be a little tiki statue, probably not, but is it success? Is it money? Is it security? Is it sex? Is it significance? Is it power? Listen to what Isaiah says to the idols of Israel. And listen to what he says to the, your, your idols and my idols. Isaiah 41. He's, he's addressing the idols. He says, set forth your case, says the Lord, to these idols. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. Or declare to us, you idol, the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed or terrified. Behold, this is his conclusion, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who has chosen you. Think back to the story in Kings of Elijah. And the prophets of Baal are bringing all of their their sacrifices. And the question is, who will answer? Who is the most powerful God? is, Is it Yahweh or is it Baal? And you remember what happens when the prophets of Baal call down fire and nothing happens and what Elijah taunts them with? What does he say? Literally, it says, maybe your God is out back relieving himself, right? That's the picture. That's the picture. See, we we have to identify with this passage and say, what have we chosen? What have we invested ourselves in? Put all of our eggs in that basket. We push all of our chips to the middle of the table. But ultimately, that very thing that we're after has crushed us. It's taken us captive. We find ourselves with the lot of lot. We're living his life where the cost of sin has been great. If you're human this morning, you're there, right? For all of us, we immediately think about something. We immediately think about this decision. If only we had done this 10 years ago. If I had only been more diligent, if I'd only been more faithful, if I'd only been more fruitful, there might be something in your life you're walking through right now. You might find yourself captives of the kings of the east. And I think if you understand that, you understand a little bit about what Lot was experiencing. See, Lot and you and I, we're in need of a divine rescue, aren't we? And sometimes that takes the form of things we don't understand or comprehend or even imagine. But if you get a picture of that, you're ready for point two. The mission of mercy. Now look back at verse 13. Let's go back to the text for a second. Someone escapes from this massacre. There's always someone who escapes, right? There's always someone there to tell the, tell the story at the end. It's the horror movie coming up on Halloween. Somebody always survives, right? Someone escapes from this massacre and comes and tells Abram, hey, Abram, lots in heap, big trouble, right? Lots in big trouble, 
your, your relative Lot, that, that no good nephew of yours, he's gone and gotten himself in a pickle. Now, if you're Abram at that point, let's be honest, what would you say? What would you say? See, I see it in your eyes. Okay? All you Enneagram twos who are helpmates, you're like, oh, I want to love and mercy for Lot. No, 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 no. Most of us are like, well, serves him right. See, I told you so. You reap what you sow. You made your bed. Lie in it. Consequences and actions, cause and effects, right? Lot has gotten every single thing that he deserves. That is not in question. The question is what does Abram do with it? Look at verse 14. This is an amazing little phrase here. It says, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them. He went to help Lot. He mobilized his forces. He, he took his best. He went out. Now, that word he led forth, oh, this is an interesting word. It literally means to pour out, like you were going to pour out a drink offering or like you're going to go to Circle K and you're going to fill up one of those 64-ounce big gulps for 99 cents, the best deal in town, by the way. You're, gonna, you're just going like, to lay it on, pour it on me. So it's, it's Moses' way of indicating to us that Abram is anything but passive at this point. He's anything but contemplative. He doesn't go back in the tent and kind of scratch his chin a little bit and say he needs to, he needs to pray about things for the next week. Don't send an email about not praying. You get what I'm saying. He's compelled to action. He's effusive in his response. Now, now why does Moses take the time to mention to us that there are, in fact, 318 men here that were part of this rescue effort? Why does he mention that? Why is that significant? I think two reasons. First, Moses is emphasizing the supernatural victory of God in this situation. 318 men is a lot of men, but it's nothing compared to the, to the numbers and might of these armies. But yet we hear, we see this, or, this attack orchestrated at night and division of forces. And it's just a reminder, it's almost as to say, with a mere 318 men, God took down these four armies. So I think that's one reason. But I think there's even a bigger reason than that. And it's simply this. It, note, it tells us here in verse, in verse 14, these weren't any 318 men. These were not mercenaries. He didn't go hire them from the pagan kings of Canaan. These 318 men were what? Born and raised in a part of Abram's own household. These were his people. These were his blood brothers. This was his community. These were his friends. This was the very best that Abram had to offer. See, it's meant to emphasize to us the mercy and generosity of Abram in response to this situation of Lot. And if you can kind of get that picture in your mind, isn't there some part of us that says, Pastor Paul, that is just crazy. Lot didn't deserve any of that, to which we want to say what? Exactly. 
Exactly. That's the whole point. See, Abram, Father Abram, Father Abraham is meant to be a picture for us of the gospel. He's meant to be for us a pointer to the mercies of God. He wants us to be reminded that today, whatever situation we find ourselves in, and it may be dire, and there, may, and, and there are ongoing consequences just like there were in the life of Abram. But God's posture, please hear this, church, God's posture towards his people is always one of mercy, is always one that is ready to spring forth into action, that is ready to be faithful even when we are unfaithful. Sometimes God brings his mercy to us and we don't know it, aren't expecting it, aren't even asking for it. But he knows what you and I need. Now, the reason I called this point the mission of mercy is that I want to do a little bit of foreshadowing that we're going to get to here in a couple of weeks. And one of you asked me this before the service because you had actually read the passage ahead of time. Well done. Interestingly, that you know, Peter calls Lot righteous. Do you, you know that in his, in, his, um, in his letter, 2 Peter? And we're going to find out a little later in the story of Lot why Peter calls him righteous. But see, at this point of redemptive history, I don't think Lot is righteous. I think Lot is unfaithful. But what we're going to see is that God is not done with Lot. God wants to do a work of grace in Lot. We're going to see later how, what happens, but here I do think we begin to see the seeds of how it begins to happen, and it happens, listen, with Abram's mercy, with Abram's forbearance. Now that sounds like a big religious word. What do we mean by forbearance? Forbearance is simply this. It's a willingness to patiently bear with sinful behavior, without withholding our love. Let me repeat that. Forbearance is a willingness to patiently bear with sinful behavior without withdrawing our love. It means that our heart is to serve a sinner and that our heart for serving that sinner, now listen, is not severed by their sin. A forbearing love does not demand a proportional response from those it serves. It'd be like parents, I'm going to stay mad at my 12-year-old because they didn't apologize to me. How absurd that is, right? How absurd that is. Same thing in the family of God. See, a forbearing love is tender. A forbearing love is cultivating a heart, an open heart towards those who are wayward. See, now, here, here's, here's something that happens. See, when people sin against us, what is our first instinct oftentimes? Now, I, mean, now, I don't mean like when people sin out there, oftentimes we can bring, have an attitude of judgmentalism. But sometimes when people sin related to us, our first instinct is what? Self-protection. We either lash out at someone because they've hurt us, we're trying to protect ourselves, or we withdraw from someone we close the emotional gates. We want to protect our hearts from further hurt. 
And as natural an impulse as that is, please understand something. That's not the gospel. See, grace, when we show grace to each other, it means we don't, we're not getting what we deserve, right? You're up for a punishment, I give you grace, you no longer have the punishment. But mercy, who? That's a whole other thing. You see, mercy is getting what we don't deserve. And that's Abram to Lot. Now, let, let me just insert a little disclaimer here. Give me like one or two minutes on this one because I think it's super important that we don't misunderstand something. See, um, and, and, I'm gonna, and I'm not peddling books up here, but when Dave Harvey and I wrote the book, Letting Go, Rugged Love for Wayward Souls, we addressed this issue. And I, I point you towards that, towards that book. But listen, mercy does not enable folly. Love is patient, but, all, but doesn't mean love isn't honest. See, patient love does not accommodate sinful behavior. You know, being patient doesn't mean that we're blind to sin or that we ignore the things that need to be corrected. There is a time, please hear me, church, for tough love, for rugged love. But these things are, can be difficult to discern. That's why we need accountability. It's why we need to talk with our leaders and our community group leaders and our friends and parcel these things out. We need wisdom. Let's be honest. Sometimes it's difficult to know, to discern when we should encourage the weak and then when we should admonish or exhort the idle. These things are, these things are tough to navigate for. But here's the point of this morning. That's not the point of this passage. That's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is that some... That for all of us, God has put someone, a person, a situation, a child that he has asked us to forbear with, a situation. He has asked us to think about what the merciful response of the gospel is. And see, and when we do that, when we think about that, there is a transforming effect that happens in people's lives. We're going to see, I believe, that by the time we get to Genesis and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and where God rescues righteous Lot, that what we have here is the beginnings of this transformation in his life. And we may say, Pastor Paul, how in the world is any of that possible? See, because as humans, we have a difficult time. How, how do mercy and judgment coexist? How, how are they held in tension? And something you need to know, and, and I need to know, that the only reason we can have this conversation this morning, the only reason we can talk about mercy and forbearance is the cross. See, it's at the cross where God doesn't ignore your sin. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He doesn't enable it. He doesn't empower it. He fully acknowledges it. It's just that he punishes Jesus in your place. See, at the cross, we receive mercy, not because we deserve it, but because Jesus purchased it for us. God's judgment to him, God's mercy to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we quote this passage all the time here. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now here it is. Knowing that all sin is ultimately taken care of the cross at the cross. 
all sin will be judged rightly by God either in this life or in the next one. Frees us, does it not? Frees us to extend mercy. It frees us to say, you know what? This act of mercy feels like I'm pouring water on the hot concrete. As soon as it hits the ground, it evaporates. It feels like I'm flushing this act of mercy right down the toilet. Pastor Paul, you don't understand. I've tried this and I've tried this and I've tried this and I've tried this. But we can extend mercy because God reminds us he has that covered at the cross. You know, most of you, many of you, if you're plugged in on the interwebs at all, you've seen it this week. The trial of the female police officer in Dallas who was convicted for um, wrongly killing an African-American man, came into his apartment, thought it was her apartment, shot him. But the most powerful piece of that whole trial was when, at the sentencing, the son or the relative, I can't remember which one, addressed, right, addressed the police officers. I don't want to say something. And, and what you saw was, it, it befuddled the nation, didn't it? This outpouring of mercy and love, I forgive you. I don't, want what's, I don't want you to be harmed. I know there's going to be consequences. I know you're going to jail, but, but I release my bitterness, my anger towards you. I forgive you. What you and understand, they, it wasn't that he negated on the stand what had happened to his family. It was devastating. It was terrible. It was awful. See, in our culture, we, want to, we can't deal with mercy and judgment at the same time, so we, we do away with one or the other. But here he says, no, no, no. I can extend grace and forgiveness to you. And they had this embrace, remember, because of what Jesus has done for me on the cross. And we see, don't we, that mission and mercy has a transformational aspect. It has an effect And that's why Jesus says, if you've truly tasted the gospel, if you've truly tasted forgiveness, if you've truly tasted mercy, guess what? You'll be merciful. You'll you'll forgive. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it takes time. C.S. Lewis said, you know, I I just woke up one day and realized I had forgiven my father. Sometimes forgiveness is a process. We We understand all of that. But as we come to the table, what we are proclaiming here is not just a vertical reality with God, that God has extended us mercy. Now we are confronted with the gospel transformation of that. How does this transform our relationships? Who is God calling us to extend forbearance, mercy, love, and forgiveness? We say, but Pastor Paul, you just don't know what this person did. You just don't know the anger and the bitterness and All this has been welled up for so long. But you know what? I may not understand that, but God does. In his patient forbearance, he passed over our sin and poured out his judgment on Jesus so that we could receive the mercy of the cross. Let's pray.